My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm glad you're here, Res Kids. If there's any of you out there, you guys can go to class. Ushers, you guys can uh, follow them the opposite way down the aisle. A couple announcements uh, before we jump into the sermon this morning. Uh, first, as uh, Molly said earlier, we have a members meeting next Sunday at, at 9.30. So this coming Sunday at 9.30 uh, here in the theater, it won't take too, too long um, I'm, I'm casting a little bit of vision for uh, 2019, and um, more importantly, I guess for you, uh, we're voting on the budget, and the budget's one of the things that uh, in our, our church constitution and bylaws, the members uh, must vote on. So we'll be voting on the budget Sunday at 9.30. Uh, another sort of piece of news, the Grinch went well last night. We had uh, over 100 people uh, here, and, and I would say at least half of them, probably more than half, we're not associated with resurrection in any uh, tangible or real way. I mean, they're not members. They don't uh, come regularly. And so it was cool. I got to meet a few folks. And I hope that, uh, that some of you who were here got to meet some people as well. And the title of today's sermon is It's Him. It's Him from Luke uh, 1, 67 through 80. As I mentioned last week in my sermon, I'm preaching through the lectionary. Um, sort of selected text for Christian worship, selected a really long time ago to help um, guide us through this season and prepare our hearts for uh, Christmas. Uh, and the text today that I had to choose from, I'm going to share them, and I want you to, if you're taking notes, write these texts down, and after the sermon, go back and, and read these texts and, and consider what do these texts have to do with the text that, that I just heard preached. Malachi 3, 1 through 4 was our Old Testament passage, Philippians 1. 3 through 11 would be the, the New Testament passage. Luke 3, 1 through 6 would be the gospel passage. And the passage I'm preaching today is the psalm. Like, well, why is it from Luke? Well, it's a poem. And so we're preaching a poem from Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? If you're familiar with your um, Bible, Zechariah is John the Baptist's father. He was a righteous man who walked blamelessly before the Lord. And in our text this morning, he is sort of fulfilling this role of an Old Testament prophet, right? He's filled with the Spirit. He's speaking of the blessing. He's blessing God for his faithfulness. And he's prophesying of how God will continue to prove himself faithful, particularly through the life of his son. This morning, as we see this, God will remind us through the mouth of Zechariah that he is faithful. He reminds us that we can trust him. He reminds us that though there may be a long, long gap between promise and blessing, he is faithful to his word, and he remembers his word, and he acts in mercy. This morning, church, through the life of John the Baptist, God reminds us that the message is greater than the messenger, that Jesus, the Most High, the Lamb of God, has come to take away the sins of the world. And this is the message that we are to be about. I pray this morning that as we read this text, this, this hymn from Zechariah, that we would be a John the Baptist sort of people. And what I mean by being a John the Baptist sort of people is that we can be kind of like him, right? John the Baptist sort of appears on the pages of Scripture. says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then a few chapters later, his head chopped off, never to be heard from again. John the Baptist appeared to disappear. The message of John the Baptist's life was, it ain't me, right? I'm here, but don't look at me. I'm here, but I'm pointing to someone else. It ain't me. It's him. 
It's him is the title of this morning's message. I think the text breaks down this morning into two parts. Verses 68 through 75, we'll call it the Benedictus. The Benedictus, the word uh, in the Vulgate that sort of uh, begins this passage, this word for blessing. The Benedictus, verses 68 through 75. And then verses 76 through 79, we'll see a prophecy. Now, verses 68 through 75, which I'll read in just a moment, is one, or are, is, whatever, one ongoing sentence in the Greek. Zechariah is extolling the Lord. He's recalling Israel's story and using language that brings to mind the promise to Abraham. The Exodus. The Exodus. I'll be preaching on the Exodus as our next big sermon series, so uh, stay tuned for that. I'm excited to preach through Exodus. And he's also recalling King David, these three major epochs in Israel's story. Zechariah looks to the root of promise that would lead to the fruit of blessing. Now, before we jump in and, and realizing that Zechariah is looking back at these, these seminal moments in the identity of an Israelite, we have to remember that the New Testament makes no sense detached from the Old Testament. And Zechariah, speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then John the Baptist especially, are going to serve as these sort of bridges between these eras of salvific history. Meaning Zechariah and John the Baptist are sort of a bridge between the Old Testament prophets who spoke of a coming Messiah and the actual coming of the Messiah. John the Baptist and Zechariah are sort of a connecting point, a degree of separation, if you will, between the Old and New Testament. And we have to remember that the Christian faith did not appear in a vacuum. Uh, Jesus did not come to start a new religion. Jesus did not come to start a new movement that forsook God's faithfulness throughout history. Rather, Jesus came simply to fulfill promises. He came to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He came to fulfill God's promise to Eve that the head of the serpent would be crushed forever through someone who would come from her seed ultimately. Advent reminds us that our God is a promise-keeping God. This is a reality we need to remember, that when Jesus enters the stage, he's doing so because he's keeping a promise. God keeps his word. He's faithful. And why does this matter to us? It matters for more than just faithful biblical interpretation. It, remi- it, it matters to us because it reminds us that God is faithful to be present in our lives that our circumstances will shift, they'll change, things will happen that we didn't see coming, but we can always trust that the Lord our God is present. He is near. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. And he's loving. And he's strong. So let's look at the text together. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, verse 67, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. When you're not speaking in the Holy Spirit, that is what we call a run-on sentence. Let's consider 
what God has done for his people. Let's start by looking at the verbs. Looking at the verbs. In verse 68, God has visited his people. He has redeemed his people, also in verse 68. Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets. So God has visited, God has redeemed, God has raised up a horn of salvation, God has spoken by the mouth of his prophets. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. So God has done all these things that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. So God has visited us. He's redeemed us. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's spoken by the mouth of his prophets that we should be delivered from our enemies to show us his mercy the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, Abraham, to grant us. So, to grant us. Let's read, let's read this backwards for a second. Let's read this backwards for a second. God has demonstrated his mercy towards us by remembering his covenant to Abraham. Right? He has spoken by the mouth of his prophets. He has raised up a horn of salvation. He's visited his, and redeemed his people. God's done all of these things. God's shown us that he's merciful. God's shown us that he remembers the covenants he has spoken. He visits us. He redeems us. He raises up a horn of salvation for us. He delivers us from our enemies. He delivers us from the hands of all who hate us. He's done it time and time again, and he continues to do so, Zechariah proclaims. He's done all of this. Verse 74 is a shift, right? that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God has looked with favor on his people by raising up a Savior. God has shown that he is merciful. God has shown that he keeps his promises. God has visited. God has redeemed. God has raised up salvation from the house of David. So the question then is this, how shall we then live? The text is clear. God has done all this, Zechariah says, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Let's dig into that together. I think there's a lot there that you can take with you. That we might serve Underline, focus on the word him, that we might serve him. He hasn't done all this that we might continue to serve ourselves. He did all this that we might serve him. He is our master. He is our Lord. When we claim to be followers of Jesus, when we claim to be the people of God, that means that we're not ours anymore. My life's not just about what I want to be, where I want to live, what I want to do, how I want to do it, when I want to do it. My life is actually in the hands of someone greater. I was uh, at the International Learning Center a few years ago, which is sort of the place in Richmond, Virginia, where uh, missionaries with the International Mission Board will live and train, and they'll take language classes and cultural classes and uh, missiology classes and things like that as they sort of and kind of leave their world as they transition out into the field. And I was having breakfast with, uh, boy, the most Baptist old lady I've ever had breakfast with from some mega Southern Baptist church in Tennessee and a couple of missionaries from East Asia. Uh, they're also from, I think they're from Kentucky, spent some time in West Virginia, and uh, that, that was my sort of connection. And so we're all having breakfast, and um, 
this sweet old lady, I really loved being with her, but you could tell there was sort of this, this awestruckness she had towards these, these missionaries. And she was just like, I just don't know how you can do it. Yeah, I just, I just don't know how you can leave your family. I, don't, I just don't know how you can leave the food and eat that food. And I, I just don't know how you can, I don't know how you can do it, man. Like, I, I just, man, you guys are so great and, and you can do all this, but I just, oh, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And I, I remember um, our, my friend's response to her being really gracious. And, and he just said, ma'am, you just do what God tells you. You, you just do what God tells you. That it's not about the income of the neighborhood that I live in. It's not about the prestige associated with my job or education. It's not about any of these things for a follower of Jesus. It's about Christ and making him known and nothing else. It's about being faithful to the one who's over me, being faithful to serve him, to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, to love my neighbors, to love my enemies. It's about being faithful, serving him with our lives. God has saved us. God has delivered us that we might not serve ourselves anymore, that we might serve him. And serve him how? Without fear. Without fear. Let's dig into that phrase now without fear. What does it mean to serve God without fear? I think that perfect love casts out fear. That's in a really good book. It's in the Bible. Did you know that God loves you? Like, for real. Like God, the creator of the cosmos, the guardian of the galaxy, if you will. That God loves you. Like the one who created all things and who sustains all things by his power. Like he knows you and he loves you and he actually likes you. Like in Christ he delights in you. He's not apathetic towards you like, like I can be to him. He doesn't wait on you to come to him so he can guilt trip you with all the time you haven't come to him. He actually enjoys you because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. These truths are staggering, and I think so often our hearts grow cold to them. At least mine does. I don't know about you. I can forget that, that God doesn't look at me sort of coldly and from a distance. That he looks at me with the joy of a father looking to his son, and it's not based on what I've done or how my week's gone. And praise the Lord, it's not based on my Hebrew exam grades. It's not based on any of these things. It's based on the fact that he is gracious and kind and merciful and loving, and that is just who he is. Because God loves you, then you can serve him without fear of losing his love. Any relationship where you just feel like your first mistake is going to cast you out is no relationship worth being in at all. Serve him without fear of falling out of his grace, without fear of falling out of favor, without fear of losing his love. Also serve him without fear of how your life may play out if you do serve him. Face the task he's called you to without fear. For some of you, this looks like leaving the comforts of home and going to the nations to proclaim the gospel in a place where the gospel has not yet been proclaimed. But for some of you, this looks like facing your fear of joining the church. 
It looks like facing your fear of knowing and being known. It looks like facing your fears of being vulnerable with people. It looks like facing your fears of insecurity, facing your fear that you're not enough, facing your fear that you can't quite live the Christian life. I know a guy who's a, just a really well-known guy in the area, and through FCA, he would always donate to us, and he would always, uh, FCA is the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, that he would always give to our work, and he'd be a part of our work, but he wasn't a Christian, and we'd say, brother, like, you want to be a Christian? He's like, I'm not, no, not ready. For like 70 years, this man said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm just scared I'll let God down. I just know I'm not good enough. I've been married 17 times. I, I, I can't. I, I just, I'm not ready. And I want him to know, I want him to actually get it with his heart that you're never going to be ready. You're never going to be good enough. And it is inevitable that once you become a Christian, you would hypothetically let God down if that were how this worked. Don't be afraid that you won't be enough because here's the news. You will not be enough. Jesus is enough. Face the task he's called you to without fear, whether it's going to the nations or joining a church or teaching res kids or whatever that may be. Face the day before you without fear. What's the worst thing that can happen to me today? What's the worst thing that can happen to me today? If the answer would be death, then we know that Jesus has defeated the sting of death. The death is just a doorway that takes me to the Lord, right? That there's nothing that can happen to me. I've already lost my life to Jesus, and there's nothing that can be taken from me. That, that, that God is sovereign over everything that happens, and everything that happens, he allows into my life. And the worst thing that can happen isn't even that bad because Jesus is in control of it. What am I afraid of? Can anyone take the love of God from me? Can anyone take the love of the one who died for me from me? No, that we might serve him without fear. Now let's consider in holiness and righteousness, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. I love that holiness and righteousness and fearlessness are put together because in our culture, those two things like make no sense. In our culture, holiness and righteousness sort of are synonymous with like being afraid that you're not good enough. But biblically speaking, that's not the case, that we might serve him in holiness and righteousness without fear. It's important to remember in the Christian life that God is more concerned with how you live than where you live or how you make money. And I say that, though, with some hesitation. God cares about those things. He cares about what you do with your life. He cares about how you spend your time. He cares about where you are. But I think he's most concerned, or at least the point of the Spirit in your life, is to mold you into the image of King Jesus. I think the Lord is more concerned with your character than your coordinates on a map. He's more concerned with molding you into the image of Jesus, and thus he will allow things into your life towards that end. He'll allow people to encourage you towards that end. He'll, he'll, he'll put things in your life that help you uh, become more like Jesus. But here's the, the difficult news to stomach. He'll allow some pretty, pretty hurtful things, some pretty painful things. Because these things expose what's real about us. They expose our sin. They expose our fear. They expose our greed. They expose our jealousy. They expose our insecurity. They expose our addiction to comfort, our addiction to pleasure. They expose these things by taking them from us. 
God wants us to live holy, righteous lives, submitting to his authority over our minds, our bodies, and our souls. This is a scary thing for the world to hear, that God wants us to live holy, righteous lives, and that he has authority over our minds, our bodies, and our souls, but there is joy and freedom in living God's way. God is the one who created us, mind, body, and soul, and God is the one who knows how we should then live as a mind, body, and soul composite. There is joy and there is freedom in living God's way, even if there is pain in that process. Even if I have to eliminate things from my life that I like or I think I like or I think help me to the end of living the way God has called me to live. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness, turning from the things of the world, turning to the things of God, living by his definitions and not our cultures of what is acceptable and pure and holy. That we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. Finally, the fourth thing I want to focus on is just this, before him all our days. Church fathers used to say we live all of life quorum Deo, right? We live all of life before the face of God. And the beautiful truth of this passage, Zechariah says, is that God has delivered us from our enemies. He's raised up a horn of salvation. He's visited us. He's redeemed us. He's done all these things that we should live in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The uncomfortable reality sometimes is that God is with us when we don't really want him to be, Right? God is with us when we wallow in self-pity. God is with us when we indulge the flesh in ways we should not indulge it. Yet God loves us. Yet God pursues us. Yet God is not ever finished with us. Yet God is patient towards us that we serve the Lord and we don't just serve the Lord. We don't serve like an aloof uh, a metaphor that gets used in philosophy a lot is uh, this idea of God as a, uh, a watchmaker, right? That he makes the watch, and then the watch just kind of functions as how a deistic worldview would interpret God, right? He's this sort of like a Benjamin Franklin or somebody, right? That, that, that God is up there, and that he created everything in, in brilliance, uh, but he created it in such a way that it'll just sort of run on its own, and he's not really concerned with the uh, everyday sort of mechanisms of that running. Uh, but the Christian worldview rejects that notion wholeheartedly because we believe that God's not just a watchmaker who sort of uh, puts you together and puts the world together and then mixes it all up and says, all right, like, play out. But rather God is with us and that all of life is happening before him and that all of life he is present and he is involved and that our God is near and we must be aware of his nearness that all of our life is lived before God. I think this is a motivation to live holy lives. I think it's an encouragement that, that God has not left us and I think it uh, helps us believe the gospel because if God has seen everything that I've done and yet loves me anyways, then that love must be powerful, that love must be strong. Church, this verse, this, uh, this sort of passage, this benedictus, if you will, reminds us that God has kept his promise. God has sent us a Savior. God has shown us how to live, and that God himself has come to live with us. Now, verse 76, the final three verses, and we're almost finished. And you, child, Zechariah turns his attention from the blessing he's been giving to God 
to his forthcoming son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And you, child, verse 76, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You're the prophet of of the Most High. You're not the Most High. I'm not the Most High. It takes a good deal of humility for a father to tell his son, listen, you ain't all that. You aren't the Most High. You're not the point of your life. I'm not the Most High. Your kids aren't the Most High. Your grandkids aren't the Most High. That Jesus alone is the Most High. And, and John the Baptist would be a prophet who points to the Most High. Son, Zechariah says, in effect, you just point to the one who's greater than you. Jesus will be the point of your life, not you. In fact, you will lose your life early because of it, but that's a different sermon. Verse 76b, right? You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. You will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. How do you go about preparing the way of the Lord? I, I think about sort of our... Um, uh, I guess, cultural uh, assumptions of sort of leadership and, and, and ruling parties, right? We have a political system where people campaign and they uh, are elected. And the crazy thing to think about is the fact that there are already campaigns starting for 2020. To that, I simply say, how long, oh Lord, how long will you tarry? When a political campaign started, they prepare a way for their candidate by telling people how awesome their candidate is. They arrange fundraising meetings. They arrange uh, meetings with important people. They plan out their political strategies for the next couple of years leading up to Election Day. And so there's sort of this, this preparation by, by a whole team of people for the way of the next governor, the next president, the next congressman, the next dog catcher, the next whatever. That's not actually an elected position, you find out later in life, but uh, that's, a, that's an aside. So how does John the Baptist go about preparing the way for the reign of King Jesus? Verse 77 gives us the answer. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. John the Baptist prepares the way for the Lord by telling of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. This is really important, guys. Connecting salvation with the forgiveness of sins is an important theme in Luke, and it's an important theme in the New Testament. Up to this point, Zechariah has been speaking broadly of deliverance, right? You've delivered us from the hands of our enemies. You've delivered us from the hands of those who hate us. And so there's this theme of deliverance that runs its way through the whole scriptural text. And here, Luke through Zechariah, is sort of connecting deliverance, ultimate deliverance, with the forgiveness of sins. The deliverance that God has in mind, ultimately for his people, to be affected in the person of Jesus, is the deliverance from sin and all its effects. When Jesus comes, the sun will rise, poetically speaking, and the sun will do two things that the sun does. It will give light to those in darkness and the shadow of death, and it will guide our feet into the way of peace. 
I almost sensed that Zechariah would be beaming with an excitement, a weighty, weighty excitement as he prophesies of his son. Son, you will be a prophet of the Most High. You will tell the people of their sin, and you will tell people who are living in the valley of the shadow of death that the light has drawn near, and this light will bring them to life. But the people, before they can walk in the light, need to know they're walking in darkness. So, son, Zechariah says, you got to tell them. You got to tell them what they intuitively know. You got to tell them that things aren't working on their own. You got to tell them that they are in sin and that their sin is keeping them from God. You'll tell them that though they, are walking, though they are walking in sin, there is forgiveness of sin coming. And in that forgiveness is their salvation. The greatest enemy of God's people has never been an occupying government as it would have been in the day of Luke or another geopolitical nation state. The greatest enemy of God's people has always been sin. Sin keeps us from experiencing God's love. Sin keeps us from experiencing God's joy. Sin keeps us from experiencing God's peace. Sin, quite frankly, keeps us from these things because it keeps us from God. But Jesus will give light to those in darkness. Jesus will deal decisively with sin once and for all. And Jesus will guide our feet into the way of peace. Deliverance has come. Deliverance far greater than any deliverance we've seen. The deliverance which all other instances of deliverance point to is here. The great enemy will be defeated by the great God. And that day, Zechariah and John the Baptist would both proclaim, is dawning. Finally, verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness, lost my place, until the day of his public appearance to Israel. One of the thing I, things I love most about John the Baptist is that he lived to disappear. He appears on the pages of Scripture uh, here, Zechariah saying, son, you're going to be the prophet of the Most High. And instead of a great biography on how this great prophet of the Most High was raised, he was raised in the wilderness. Zechariah is born. Zechariah disappears. Er, John the Baptist is born. And John the Baptist disappears. He's not the most popular guy in town. Wasn't the most popular kid in school. Whatever that looked like. But when this moment for ministry would finally come as an adult... He would show up onto the scene dressed oddly, perhaps misunderstood by many, many people, and he would proclaim, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then after he's given that proclamation, what does he do again? He just disappears. And he reappears on the pages of Scripture when his head is chopped off and served to royalty on a platter. John the Baptist lived to disappear in the light of something greater. John the Baptist lived to disappear in the light of something greater. Church, I think we do too. I'm not John the Baptist. Um, you're not John the Baptist. But you, like me, are ambassadors of God's kingdom. We're members of God's household. We're members of God's family. We're people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel, right? We're people who have been reconciled to God uh, through the gospel. 
And because we've been reconciled to God through the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come, lived, died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, and will come again, because this news has so changed our lives, we're called to be stewards of this news. We're called to take this news down the street and across the world. We have the message of reconciliation. And here's the powerful truth that Paul teaches us in his second letter to the Corinthians, that God is making his appeal to the world through us. That God is making his appeal to the world through the local church. That God is using redeemed people to share the gospel, the message of redemption, so that more people may be redeemed. God could send angels. He could, send, he could write a message in the sky. But God has chosen us, his people, to be his ambassadors and to take this gospel to all people. We are called to disappear in the light of something greater. We are called to say, listen, this is the message I'm given. And the message I have for you this morning, the message I have for you this afternoon, the message I have whenever I give this message is that I'm not all that, that Jesus is all that. My life points to his life, and it's there I find meaning. It's there I find purpose. When I give my life, Jesus teaches there, I'll find it. Jesus will come again. And this time he won't be a baby. He will be the roaring lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come to judge the nations, and at his feet all will bow. And until he does, may our hearts' refrain be simple. It ain't me, it's him. Worship team, if you guys would come uh, to the table, and we will start uh, our uh, bi-monthly. Does that mean twice a month or every two months? I get really confused on that one. We'll start our bi-monthly, uh, I guess, observance of the Lord's Supper. I'll wait till they get here. Guys, I uh, uh, invite you to partake of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. When we approach this table in a moment, our, the whole congregation, this is an opportunity for us to uh, identify as a family. This is like our family table. It's the table around which we've gathered for uh, 2,000 years. It's the table around which we come as different as we are, but say, though we look different, though we make different amounts of money, though we uh, have different occupations, though we're from different neighborhoods, though we look different on the outside, like essentially because we're in Christ, we are one body, we are one family, we are one people. And as we approach this table, it's like we're approaching our, our family table. And so this is for people who are in God's family. So if you're here this morning visiting and you're, you're not a Christian, you're not uh, in God's family, then it wouldn't make sense for you to say, hey, I'm going to partake of the, you know, this representation of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ because you haven't appropriated those to your life. But we're glad you're here and invite you to, to watch and you know, walk up or however you feel comfortable and, and see what all's going on. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, after I do, I invite you to come forward and partake of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. So let us pray together. Father, um, thank you for your word.
Thank you for this hymn from Zechariah, whereby we recall your faithfulness through the generations, whereby we see that you've kept your promise to Eve, that through her offspring, the head of the serpent, the head of the enemy, would be crushed, that you've kept your promise to Abraham, that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and that through him you would make a great family for yourself. You kept your promise to David, that one from his lineage would rule over God's people forever and ever and ever. You saw a weary world walking in sin. As Zechariah says in your spirit, Lord, they were living in the shadow of death. And you have caused the sun to rise, to give us light, to give us knowledge of salvation, to give us knowledge that this salvation is about the forgiveness of sins, to show us that Jesus has come to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve to die, that we might receive grace and mercy that Jesus has come to defeat the great enemy of sin, that one day at his feet all will bow. Sin in all its personal and complex structural presence will be defeated under the feet of King Jesus. Thank you for coming to earth and thank you for sending your spirit to dwell in us, that we might live in holiness and righteousness before you, all of our days. Thank you for your spirit who teaches us how to live, who prompts us how to live, and who changes our lives, who uproots the deep-seated patterns of sin that we have and replaces it with joy and mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who are kind of like John the Baptist as, we entered, as he proclaimed your first coming. In light of the fact that you're coming again, can we take note of his life and say, Lord, we give you our lives. And if it means living in the wilderness for a long time or getting our head chopped off, whatever it means, Lord, help us point to you. Help us say, it's not me. Salvation's coming, but I don't have the answer. Jesus does. Lord, teach us how to disappear in the light of someone greater. In Christ's name we pray, amen.